This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good evening. It is uh, such a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to publicly acknowledge the Africana Studies program for inviting me to give this lecture, as well as acknowledge the work that Professor Crystal Lucky and Joyce Harden did for coordinating my visit. This is literally the smoothest visit to any campus I have ever had. Uh, I would also like to thank the campus community at Villanova uh, for its decade-long uh, sponsorship of the Senghor de Mas Césaire Lecture. It is a singular honor to give a lecture named after three of the most important activist intellectuals of the 20th century, Leopold Sendar Senghor, Léon de Mas, and Aimé Césaire. Uh, while best known as the founders of the Negritude Movement, Senghor, Demas, and Césaire articulated powerful visions of black citizenship in their poetry and in their political praxis. It is significant that these three men met and developed an anti-racist and anti-colonial critique during the tumultuous period between the First and Second World Wars, and that's the era that I'm going to discuss in my lecture today. Senghor, Damas, and Césaire were part of a generation of black activists, intellectuals, workers, and veterans who participated in a transnational diasporic dialogue about the meaning of blackness and democracy in the 1920s and 30s. At this contemporary moment, when the human rights of black and brown people are under attack due to state violence in Ferguson, southern Mexico, and elsewhere, the significance of their freedom dreams is particularly clear. My lecture is drawn from my current book manuscript, which investigates how World War I transformed Afro-Caribbean's understandings of and engagements with the British Empire. The book advances our understandings of the origins of the nationalist movement in the British West Indies by illuminating the process which transformed Afro-Caribbean soldiers from agents of imperialism to ardent champions of democracy. The book also highlights black soldiers' pivotal role in mapping and mobilizing the African diaspora. As we mark the centenary of the outbreak of World War I this year, I hope to recover the place of black soldiers in the global catastrophe that unfolded 100 years ago. Tonight, I want us to consider how the war added new urgency to debates about race, empire, and citizenship in the British Caribbean. Specifically, I want us to consider how Afro-Caribbean women and men imagine democracy while living in the heart of the world's largest empire. Right? And this is the question that really animated the book. What does it mean for people to imagine democracy while being deprived of it? Right? Um, how can we imagine democracy from below? As tens of thousands of Afro-Caribbean soldiers prepared to sail for Europe, the editors of the Grenada Federalist, a black newspaper in the very small island in the Eastern Caribbean of Grenada, considered how the unprecedented mobilization for war would alter the political status of black men and women in the Caribbean. In an editorial published in October of 1915, the newspaper predicted that black soldiers' military service would undermine racial hierarchies in the British Empire and usher in a new era of equality. As colored people, we will be fighting for something more, something inestimable to ourselves, they declared. 
we will be fighting to prove to Great Britain that we are not so vastly inferior to the whites that we should not be put on a level at least of political equality with them. We will be fighting to prove that distinctions between God-made creatures of one empire because of skin, color, or complexion differences should no longer exist. We will be fighting to prove that we are no longer merely subjects, but citizens, citizens of a worldwide empire whose watchwords should be liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Writing four years later, so writing in the immediate aftermath of World War I, Jamaican poet and novelist Claude McKay maintained that the political impact of World War I was even more dramatic than the editors of The Federalist had envisioned. Visiting black soldiers in London, McKay documented the pervasive discrimination non-white servicemen had experienced during the war. In a provocative editorial published in Marcus Garvey's Negro World newspaper, McClay <coughs> proclaimed, we should rejoice that Germany so blundered that Negroes from all over the world were drawn to England to see the lion, afraid and trembling, hiding in cellars, and the British ruling class revealed to them in all of its rottenness and hypocrisy. McKay insisted that although the war in Europe was over, the battle to sever the chains of imperialism had only just begun. During the World War I era, Afro-Caribbean activists consistently imagined black veterans as the political vanguard. Throughout the region, commentators viewed black veterans as the literal and symbolic embodiment of their claim to equal rights. Black veterans' militant stance was not only produced by the discrimination they experienced during the war, it was actively encouraged by a groundswell of civilian commentators who cajoled, lobbied, and pressured them to act globally on behalf of the black race. Thus, C.L.R. James, the Trinidadian writer who would become the most important West Indian radical intellectual of the 20th century, predicted that ex-soldiers would play a pivotal role in the political awakening in the 1930s and 40s. A detailed history of West Indians during the war uh, will be told someday, James predicted in 1932. A comprehensive account of the efforts and disappointments of the British West Indies Regiment, he insisted, was, quote, a necessary piece of West Indies history. The First World War, as historian Chad Williams notes, quote, set millions of descendant Africans in motion through the demands of combat and labor, bringing them into contact with one another and fundamentally transforming the demographic, ideological, and imaginative contours of the diaspora. During the war, over a half a million black servicemen from France's colonies in West Africa and the Caribbean served. Belgium deployed 17,000 colonial troops from the Congo alone, and over 350,000 African Americans served and fought on behalf of the United States in a segregated military. And indeed, there's been a lot of excellent work thinking about African American soldiers' roles in the war. In addition, 15,000 men from Britain's Caribbean colonies served in a newly created regiment called the British West Indies Regiment, or BWIR for short. Unlike most colonial regiments, the BWIR was an all-volunteer force. Afro-Caribbean soldiers enlisted in the regiment based on the explicit promise that they would be treated on equal terms as their white British counterparts. 
Indeed, the military recruitment campaign painted the British Army as a bastion of interracial fraternity and martial brotherhood. Recruitment materials stressed that Caribbean volunteers would be mobilized as combat soldiers and re would receive the same pay as British troops. And I included in my slides just two examples of this recruitment discourse. Right, the first is a set of posters, recruitment posters, that were um, posted in the Bahamas, right? And if you see the poster on your left, the wording in all caps, that men of every class, creed, and color are invited to come forward, right? This idea that the kind of gendered rhetoric and the gendered participation of men would transcend racial differences. You see that again here in a, a cartoon where the British Empire is represented as a series of male soldiers, right? Uh, I'm really interested in my larger project in thinking about how both women, of course, are erased from this vision of the British Empire, right? Uh, and also how this vision is racialized. So I hope it shows up uh, well for you, but each sash has a name of a British colony. In the center, the figure that is much larger and doesn't have a label is John Bull, representing Great Britain, right? So we have from left to right, New Zealand, Canada, John Bull, of course, in the center. Australia, India, represented very racially, right, as a Sikh man. And then the entire continent of Africa, right, um, represented on the end in a figure that has generally European features, right? Um, what's missing from this kind of martial vision of brotherhood was the Caribbean, right? Literally in this image, there's no recognition of the ability of Caribbean men to join this martial brotherhood, right? This kind of image literally erased Britain's very oldest colonies. Far from being a bastion of interracial equality, the British West Indies Regiment was led by an all-white officer corps while black and colored West Indians were restricted to the enlisted ranks. Uh, furthermore, Afro-Caribbean soldiers endured racist taunts, abysmal working conditions, and sometimes even faced physical assaults from commanding officers and fellow soldiers. Right? Thus, the reality of this kind of imperial masculine family uh, was belied by the reality of racial discrimination, both within the regiment and within the larger British Army. Indeed, here are two pictures of the officer corps of the British West Indies Regiment, right, which looks very different than the pictures of the enlisted men. In a further slight, Afro-Caribbean soldiers who, to who were told that they'd be mobilized as combat troops, if you think back to the poster, right, it's come and fight with the British Army, instead spent most of their war years as non-combatant laborers doing manual labor across Europe and the Middle East. After the British War Office declined to mobilize black soldiers to fight against a white European enemy. And here are just a few images of how most West Indian soldiers actually spent the war, right? This is troops working in an ammunition dump in Belgium. Um, this is a picture of soldiers in the Middle East. Uh, this is an image of soldiers constructing dugouts in Palestine. Uh, here's another picture, and it's significant here that they're working alongside paid civilian laborers from Egypt, not other soldiers. And this is a picture uh, I think really captures uh, the, the realities of war, right? I mean, the men in these picture, this picture from Mesopotamia always stands out to me in the ways in which they just look physically exhausted. 
right? That they're, all of the kind of glory and prestige of having a military uniform is stripped um, as they just literally look like worn out workers that could be anywhere, right? There's nothing in particular about this image except perhaps the hat that signals they're doing military work. Yet the experience of serving overseas in Egypt, East Africa, Europe, and the Middle East provided an unprecedented opportunity for Caribbean soldiers to encounter black soldiers from throughout the colonized world. Right? And so if there is any benefit to this kind of experience, it is that, is that they, it allowed them uh, to meet colonized troops uh, from, from Africa, from India, and also to encounter African-American soldiers who were also working and soldiering in Europe. Thus, as the editors of the Panama Workmen explained in 1919, the mobilization for war had inadvertently sparked heightened diasporic identity among Afro-descendants. They wrote, the spirit of insularity and provincialism is now dying out. We are fast approaching a time of intercolonial and international fraternization. All colored people are beginning to feel that they are related in aims, aspirations, demands, and interests. The accident of geographic conditions is becoming a diminutive proposition. We are thinking now of more important things as a race than where a man was born or the accident of who was his great grandfather. Right? So this idea that the war allowed for a new transnational diasporic consciousness that overcame the insularity of individual identification. Scholarly accounts of black transnationalism rarely acknowledge the military as a central actor in the modern dispersal and resettlement of people of African descent, despite the fact that black soldiers were among the most mobile group of people of color <coughs> in the 20th century. Likewise, accounts of the First World War rarely explore the contributions of black soldiers and civilians. Yet, overseas West Indian communities, as well as Caribbean communities in the islands, mobilized in support of the Allied cause. Afro-Caribbean migrant laborers volunteered to serve in the British West Indies Regiment from the Amazon of Brazil. British West, Indies, British West Indians living in Venezuela raised money for the Red Cross. And over 2,000 of the men who ultimately served in the British West Indies Regiment enlisted in Panama, not from the Caribbean islands, where they had just finished building the Panama Canal. By tracing this rapid circulation of people, text, and ideas during the war years across linguistic and geopolitical boundaries, we can better understand how the dislocations of war transformed the political consciousness and praxis of Afro-Caribbean men and women. So with these points in mind, I'd like to explore how black veterans and their civilian allies reappropriated the language of democracy and self-determination during the post-war period to critique European colonialism and white supremacy. I hope to make three interrelated arguments. First, with remarkable consistency, commentators argue that the so-called war for democracy <coughs> had failed to transform the colonial status of men and women in the Caribbean or in the larger African diaspora. Second, they argued that Afro-Caribbeans and other people of African descent had demonstrated their fitness for self-government through their wartime military service. And third, they argued that the path to self-determination required racial unity and cooperation. It required a kind of diasporic consciousness that the war produced. 
Debates about the meaning, substance, and possibility of democracy were at the very heart of the interwar British Caribbean, and I would argue more largely at the center of the interwar African diaspora. While colonial officials heralded the British Empire as a model of, quote, egalitarian imperialism, uh, Afro-Caribbean veterans and their families used the language of democracy to articulate their own demands for equality and social citizenship. Their vernacular definitions of democracy drew from a broad and often conflicting array of political traditions, including French republicanism, Wilsonianism, and black nationalism, in order to highlight the pervasive social, economic, and political inequalities they experienced. Their popular calls for democracy emphasized substantive rights and reciprocity rather than the simple expansion of electoral politics. And that's one of the, the major claims I want to emphasize today. I think we often think about democracy narrowly as electoral politics, right? The ability to go to the ballot box. And what they're arguing for is a much more expansive conception of democracy, right? That takes into account social relations, not just the literal, what a one Caribbean critic called five-minute democracy, right? The five minutes it takes to check a ballot. They're thinking about something much broader than that. Their popular calls for democracy, right, in, in, emphasize these substantive rights, insisting that, quote, true democracy required more than political reforms. The editors of one Caribbean newspaper declared, quote, the masses throughout the length and breadth of the civilized world are determined that liberty, equality, and fraternity shall no longer be mere catchwords. Democracy shall be no empty romance. Furthermore, Afro-Caribbean women and men argued that black men's military service had earned the entire race the right of democracy. And this is another thing I want to emphasize, the idea here that black men's military service did not just earn men who fought privileges, but actually earned those privileges for the entire race, men and women, soldiers and civilians. As West Indian soldiers prepared to return home from the war, military authorities were very worried uh, that black veterans had been radicalized by their experiences abroad. In January 1919, for example, Lieutenant Colonel J.R.H. Humphrey, an officer with the Royal Martine Artillery, dispatched an ominous report to the Secretary of the War Council. Now that hostilities had concluded, he argued, he sensed a, quote, great deal of uneasiness about the return of black soldiers. West Indian veterans, Humphrey predicted, would return to the colonies, quote, imbued with revolutionary ideas, end quote, and demand unreasonable compensation for their military service. Quote, all, all the blacks, he wrote, seem to imagine that they are not going to work anymore and that they will be supported by a grateful country. If they revolted, he predicted, the small number of white police and soldiers would be unable to contain them. Therefore, he recommended that the Royal Marines dis dis dispatch armed guards with machine guns uh, to patrol the West Indies as returning soldiers came back home, right? So imagine, right, that the level of fear of returning veterans is so much that British officials are thinking about, right, uh, deploying warships to patrol against returning soldiers, right? How soon the language of patriotism patriotism withers. 
Colonial officials in the Caribbean echoed military officials' worst fears about black veterans. In May of 1919, Governor Leslie Probin fretted that Jamaican veterans, inspired supposedly by the Bolshevik Revolution, would bring home, quote, a form of Russianized unrest. The following month, Governor Charles O'Brien detected, quote, considerable disaffection among Barbados's veterans. In his memoir, a white Jamaican constable named Herbert Thomas recalled that there was tremendous anxiety among the white community in the Caribbean about the loyalty of returning soldiers. Likewise, a Trinidadian official, Percy Frazier, argued that soldiers would return with, quote, a high pitch of resentment because of the racism they had experienced during the war. I have no hesitation in stating that this awful feeling cropped up in full force, wrote Frazier, on the return of British West Indies Regiment soldiers. To be sure, many Afro-Caribbean veterans returned home angry and disillusioned by their experiences abroad, though it was certainly not because of the Bolshevik Revolution. Having volunteered to fight in a war for democracy, black soldiers had encountered the violence of empire. Quote, the army was a shock to me, Bahamian soldier Etienne Depute wrote after returning from the war. Here we were fighting for freedom, but everywhere a sign stared in our face, out of bounds to native troops. Many were the humiliations us natives, sons of the crown, were obliged to endure while voluntarily offering up our lives in the cause of freedom. After his experiences as a private in the military, Depute swore that he would, quote, never lift a finger, end quote, to defend the British Empire. Reflecting on the political impact of the war, First World War veteran Clinton Wickham made a similar claim. There is no doubt that the, about the changed outlook which the war has brought to the minds and tempers of colonial people, he declared. Most of the men who served returned to their homes with their sense as well as their senses quickened. They were no longer content to be considered children of the empire. They wanted to assume the dignity and responsibility of grown-ups. I thought that this was a particularly evocative understanding of the political transformations that occurred, right? That Wickham is stating that no longer are West Indians willing to be ch children or junior partners in the empire, denied political rights. Instead, he argues that they wanted to, quote, assume the dignity and responsibility of being grown-ups. West Indian veterans were not alone in issuing post-war critiques of racism within the British Empire. Civilian activists across the region hoped to leverage their wartime sacrifices to demand the experience of being, quote, grown-ups in the empire. Prominent black activist and attorney Emmanuel Lazare expressed many of the hopes of West Indian reformers in a letter he published in 1919. A fierce critic of Crown Colony rule, Lazare argued that West Indian sacrifices on the battlefield during the war should be rewarded with representative government in the post-war period. On the battlefields of Europe, white, black, and colored Trinidadians gave their lives in the greatest of all causes, he wrote, the fight for democracy. Now that the war was over, he asked, would West Indians, quote, be included in the great democratic circle, which is now encompassing the world? or would they not be given a voice in the Congress of Nations? Lazare argued that if colonial officials were unwilling to reward all West Indians with political rights, 
then there would need to be popular mobilization to force them to do so. In his words, the people must rise up to the occasion and be, quote, up and doing if colonial officials were unwilling to honor their promise uh, to reward colonial veterans with political rights. Esteemed schoolmaster Theo McKay, the elder brother of Claude McKay, likewise used the language of mutual obligation to articulate the state's debt to West Indian veterans. Yet in contrast to Lazare, he emphasized material rewards such as land grants, pensions, and other forms of economic opportunity rather than simply focusing on political rights. In recognition of their sacrifices on behalf of the empire, McKay recommended that all returning soldiers should receive well-paying employment along with, quote, a sum of money or a bit of land. Having seen the world and served in the British Armed Forces, he argued, they should not be expected to do the menial and uh, manual labor that many West Indians had to do, what he called pick and shovel work. Decrying the low pre-war wages on the island, the noted socialist and freethinker argued that ex-soldiers, civil servants, and laborers must receive fair compensation if at Jamaica as a colony hoped to advance. The old order has passed away and has passed forever, he declared. The cry now is forward. Lazare and McKay were part of a rising chorus of black and colored activists whose demands for reform sparked the explosive growth of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Following the armistice that ended World War I, Marcus Garvey, the famous black Jamaican nationalist, warned European statesmen that, quote, uh, that they needed to be, quote, very just to all people in the post-war period if they hoped to avoid another conflict. Garvey argued that there would be no peace until the colonial question had been settled and the discourse and practice of self-determination went beyond Europe into the colonial world. Garvey also argued that the war had ushered in a new era of political thinking among black people, declaring, quote, we are a new people born out of a new day. We were born out of the bloody war of 1914 to 1918. And I really think of this as a harbinger to what would later be called the New Negro Movement. Indeed, many of the editorials of this era present black soldiers as prototypical New Negroes. Uh, and Garvey's language here emphasizes this kind of political rupture, saying that a new people emerged after the war. Similar to Garvey, Jamaican uh, writer and intellectual W.A. Domingo also argued that the future of the British West Indies would require a political renaissance for black women and men. Domingo argued that black men had participated in the war effort uh, because they had been pushed to do so by bellicose politicians in Britain. Uh, he also argued, however, that their participation was not simply self-serving patriotism, writing that beneath the surface was, quote, uh, a belief that their suffering and participation in the war would garner real political rewards. Domingo argued that black veterans and civilians would no longer accept, quote, economic serfdom or political slavery. He wrote, the British Empire cannot be half despotic and half democratic. 
If oligarchical rule is to be tolerated by the Englishmen in England, it should not be tolerated by the sections of them in their own empire. If political freedom is good enough to be forced upon the Germans, then it is certainly good enough for Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, St. Kitts, and the other islands of the Antilles. The Negro world provided a vital forum for Afro-Caribbean veterans and civilians to formulate vernacular conceptions of democracy that emphasize the rights of black men and women. Other black newspapers from the era, including periodicals published in the US, the Caribbean, and in Central America, helped to shape the post-war black public sphere. And here I'm thinking about radical newspapers from Harlem, like the Crusader and the Messenger, um, newspapers in the Caribbean, like the Argos and the West Indian, as well as several English language newspapers that were published in Central America. Indeed, some of the most radical critiques came uh, from West Indians living abroad, particularly uh, in the Isthmus of Panama, where tens of thousands of West Indians had migrated before the war to build the Panama Canal. The most important critiques emerged in a pro-labor Panamanian newspaper called The Workman. Published in Panama City, the bilingual newspaper um, issued strong calls for black self-determination. The race is now asking for the practical dispensation of full democracy, they wrote. A one-sided and incomplete democracy may have lived on uncontested in antebellum times, but the war has made the nations call on the colored races for help. And these races, having answered the call, now in turn are calling on calling for a true justice and to demonstrate a true sense of liberty. By August of 1919, the workmen began to issue an even more strident critique of the racialized aspects of the democratic discourse in the interwar years. They wrote, the world has been safe for democracy and Negroes have helped to make it so. Will democracy prove herself grateful to those of darker complexions who made the greatest sacrifices so that Europe would not be trampled into dust? Or will it ignore the pleas of black and brown peoples like the frost-bitten snake that, bit, that bites the bosom? Um, as this example demonstrates, popular calls for democracy often included explicit calls for black self-determination as well, that these two things went hand in hand, right? This idea of a racial, a black racial consciousness and a strong call for democracy. Perhaps the clearest example of this is the writings of an, uh, an activist named Eduardo Morales, who was a uh, writer in Panama as well as a political organizer. Fluent in both Spanish and in English, Morales had served as a labor union leader and journalist in the Panama Canal Zone. He also embraced what uh, historian Tony Martin called a race-first philosophy, and he urged all black men and women to overcome ethnic differences. He described himself, he noted that even though he was a Panamanian, that he emphasized the fact that, as he said, that he called himself a Negro. In his address to returning soldiers, Morales mused that black men had enlisted to, quote, make the world safe to live in and to fight for the world's democracy. Yet, as a result of the Allies' often racist policies, the post-World War War, he argued, was defined by, quote, a white democracy. Now that the war against Germany had concluded, Morales argued that it was time for, quote, an everlasting Negro democracy in the Americas. 
For him, that meant that black soldiers would emerge as the vanguard of a new political struggle for complete equality. You have been washed in the blood of sacrifice. You have been baptized with the baptism of fire, he declared. You have descended into hell to bury the old Negro and have returned to us a new Negro, holding high the standards of racial purity in the face of the entire world, demanding rights for members of your race. Here Morales combines all three of the kind of substantive critiques that I offered at the beginning of the lecture. He emphasizes a transnational black racial community. He emphasizes the, the limitations of the Western discourse of democracy. Right? And he counters that by claiming that there was a need for a Negro democracy, right? um, a move for democratic rights for people of African descent. Returning Caribbean soldiers not only debated the contours and meaning of democracy in the region's black press, um, but also took to the streets, most dramatically in the, the Central American colony of Belize. In July of 1919, a small group of returning veterans launched what would end up becoming the largest protest uh, in, the, in the colony's history. On the evening of July 22nd, eight to 10 veterans dressed in their military uniforms began marching in formation down the center of the capital city, smashing windows of the city's white owned department stores. They marched in military formation and, and struck the windows of the stores on the sign of a collective whistle. When one of their former commanding officers tried to stop their protest, the men countered Oh, this is not Mesopotamia, this is not Egypt, this is Belize. Mm -hmm. The coordinated protest by this small group of veterans quickly erupted into a full-blown urban rebellion after the capital city's electric generator mysteriously failed. As the city of Belize town plunged into darkness, civilian women, men, and children flooded the streets and began taking goods from all of the major department stores. Within minutes of the power failure, one witness uh, noted that protesters were hauling, quote, sewing machines, gramophones, bundles of clothing, and other goods out of white-owned businesses. Another witness watched helplessly as, quote, hundreds of women, men, and veterans, end quote, passed by with, quote, a tremendous load of goods. Here, many of the witnesses emphasized that although the protest was started by returning veterans, the vanguard was quickly taken over by local black women. Indeed, one witness lamented the fact that women were, quote, passing by with their dresses full of loot and coming back for more. Within hours of the rebellion start, a crowd of three to 4,000 people, which was around one fourth of the city's population, right, uh, were protesting in the streets. And if that is the kind of image isn't dramatic enough, right, of one out of every four citizens in the capital city in the streets protesting, that three to 4,000 people uh, of number of protesters was met by a police force of 35 men. Yeah. Armed with walking sticks, axes, hatchets, and fence palings, veterans, uh, civilian women, and uh, according to reports, also children, also attacked the homes of prominent whites as well. To many local white residents, the protest looked like a race riot. Every white man in the streets, the governor recalled, carried his life in his hands. Another witness proclaimed that anybody with a white face incurred, incurred the wrath of the crowd. 
The urban rebellion in Belize finally subsided the following day at daybreak. In the light of day, the scope of the damage was striking. Insurance claims for the nine-hour uprising exceeded over $138,000. Ten of the city's largest stores had been wrecked, leaving a trail of broken glass and ruined merchandise for miles. Yet for some of the black women protesters, the uprising had not gone far enough. According to witnesses, one woman, a cook named Annie Flowers, reportedly declared, the black men have no pluck. The women have to be behind them all the time or else they do nothing. But if they were all like me, I would take their wives and daughters and live with them and teach them that this country belongs to the blacks, end quote. Threatening to, quote, shove hat pins in the eyes of bloody white men, end quote, the next time there was an uprising, Flowers reportedly vowed that she would work to clear all of the wealthy whites from Belize town. When the warship of British Marines leaves, she allegedly added, quote, we will know what to do with those white bastards, right? Uh, as, historian, uh, as historians of Belize have pointed out, uh, I'm here particularly thinking about Anne McPherson's work on women activists, right? Black soldiers not initially started as the vanguard, but the issues that they uh, made visible were issues that resonated through, you know, a, around a large swath of colonial society. Issues around socioeconomic mobility, the lack of political rights, and racism within the British Empire. Issues that affected black women at least as much as black men. Veterans uh, in Jamaica and in Trinidad also took to the streets in 1919, although their protests lacked the planning, scope, and intensity of the uprising in British Honduras. Labor activists embracing the militant tone of women like Annie Flowers and some West Indian veterans also linked the language of democracy to the struggle to black self-determination. In Trinidad, labor union leader James Braithwaite mobilized fellow workers by invoking black soldier sacrifices during the war. In a speech, Braithwaite proclaimed, you are a powerful race and our power was proven in the gigantic struggle for black liberation. You don't think it's a shame for the intelligent Negro to remain sleeping and waiting for amelioration? No, we must fight. If we can fight for the white man against his German brothers, we can die better for ourselves. In Costa Rica, Afro-Caribbean labor union leaders also invoked black veterans' bravery to inspire their workers to strike. Quote, friends, countrymen, do you remember that the white man told us during the war that we were fighting for democracy, equality, and therefore to become free subjects? A West Indian activist thundered. If we've given a good account of ourselves in the bloody war, why not here too? To be sure, not all returning veterans embraced a militant, anti-racist, anti-colonial discourse and praxis. Indeed, few veterans were as radical as Annie Flowers was. But some, some British West Indies Regiment veterans, particularly those who returned from the war disabled or unemployed, sought to make the state their patron instead of their adversary. They invoked notions of mutual obligation rather than the language of black self-assertion to press colonial officials to honor their commitments to ex-servicemen. It is clear, however, that Afro-Caribbean veterans and civilians from a broad range of political perspectives invoked their wartime sacrifices to argue that the pre-war status quo was simply no longer acceptable. Instead, they reappropriated the rhetoric of democracy to make the claim that self-determination and socioeconomic mobility were not solely the birthright of Europeans. 
By calling for a Negro democracy, to use Eduardo Morales's phrase, black veterans and their allies expose the profound limitations of the democratic tradition in the West, while also highlighting the radical promise of Republican odes to liberty, equality, and fraternity. As we prepare to celebrate Veterans Day tomorrow, it is precisely this complex and often looked history of black veterans that I hope we will take time to remember. Thank you. I will welcome any questions. I actually have a question about sure. your work. Um, I was just struck, I don't know, I think I know a little bit more about African American veterans of the Second World War, yes. right? And their struggle for equality and, you know, was within the the military and then after returning home. Yeah. But I was really struck by just the way that the the First World War soldiers um, in the British West Indies and throughout the, the Caribbean are talking about the way that they feel about the racism they encounter and the kinds of work that they're made to do and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, have do they do the the West Indian soldiers, are, do you find connections that they're making with what um, black people in the United States are saying, what with black World War I veterans, what, what they are talking about, or, you know, like, are there yeah. these kind of intercontinental Yeah, so no, that's a fantastic question. Um, and indeed, there are many points of connection between black veterans in the Caribbean and African-American veterans, yeah. right? Um, so how are these connections being made? Well, one site is literally in France, where both African-American soldiers are deployed and Afro-Caribbean soldiers are deployed. So even during the war, um, the, these soldiers are able to encounter one another, right? Um, also, after the war, there is a transnational black press so Afro-Caribbeans are not only reading Caribbean English language newspapers, they are also subscribing to newspapers coming out of Harlem. So newspapers like The Crusader, The Messenger, The Negro World, even newspapers like The Negro Age, um, the, I'm sorry, The New York Age. Uh, West Indians have subscriptions to those newspapers and are reading them in their homes, not only in the Caribbean, but also in places like Panama, uh, Costa Rica. Uh, and other places where there are large West Indian migrant communities. So through those journals, uh, they read the accounts of African-American veterans who are talking about lynching. Indeed, one of the, the things I'm interested in is how um, Afro-Caribbeans are encountering, are, in, are, are horrified, they reprint accounts of lynching in Caribbean newspapers from the US press. Right? So they, uh, through the press, are learning about the fact that African-American soldiers following World War I are being lynched in their uniforms. Right? They're learning about uh, the bloody series of race riots across the U.S. in 1919, where black returning soldiers are killed in their uniforms during these um, race riots. Uh, there are also many Afro-Caribbeans, both veterans and civilians, uh, are part of the same migratory networks. Right, so thousands of them after the war moved to Harlem, right, where they literally are having face-to-face -face conversations with African Americans. Right? They're also moving to South Florida, 
right? Um, they're participating, those who are working on ships are meeting African-American seamen. Um, so there are, it's remarkable in this age, right? So well before the kind of age of electronic communication, Afro-Caribbeans uh, are well aware of the struggle of African-American soldiers. They are literally reading about it uh, in the press. They are encountering it when they come to the United States themselves uh, and, and experience you know, uh, Jim Crow segregation. And they also are encountering it when they're meeting black soldiers abroad. Right? Uh, so many of the, the soldiers I study actually uh, are thinking about the problem and the disenfranchisement of black veterans in a hemispheric sense, not simply as a Caribbean or a local problem, but rather as a kind of global black problem. Do they, are, are they feeling like, excuse me, so is there a lot of um, collaboration in terms of how to address it in their respective spheres? Um, are, are, so are they collaborating in terms of strategy or are they just sharing information? So I would say the, certainly the most common point is of sharing of information through the black press. Right? And if you ever have a chance to read something like The Negro World, uh, which was the, the official organ of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, it was a global black organization uh, with over a thousand chapters stretching from Australia to the, you know, the west coast of the U.S. and nearly everywhere in between. Right? Uh, it was a newspaper that had a column in Spanish, uh, as well, a column in French, as well as most of the text being in English. And members wrote in from all over the world reporting about what was going on in their local black community. Right? Um, so that was certainly a really important space. Uh, black veterans also got together in some of the radical transnational black organizations of the era. Right? Um, so black veterans who moved to the US uh, joined together, uh, at, well, Afro-Caribbean veterans who moved to the US uh, joined organizations like the Af African Blood Brotherhood in Harlem, organizations like the NAACP, and of course the organizations like the Universal Negro Improvement Association. So through those mass organizations, they were able to fight for these things, right? Um, I would say in terms of policy, because black veterans had to pursue rights through the army that they enlisted in, right? That they were able to share information and emphasize their common problems. But of course, if you needed a pension from the British army, you couldn't sue the US government for that, right? So that there were uh, things that could be tackled collectively and other issues that were specific to the army you enlisted in. I wonder if it wasn't um, overdetermined too, it's mm -hmm. like, if you're denied equality, right, and then there's a fight against some other enemy, that in some ways you have to fight in order to demonstrate that you are indeed equal, right, to disrupt that, um, the, the prejudice and inequality that exists, but you can see how they're exploited, right? No, I think this is absolutely key, and I'll go back to the cartoon, right, uh, that I pointed to earlier. There we are, right? So this image circulated in August of 1914, so within a month of the outbreak of war, right? This is at the very beginning of World War I, right? And this kind of image, right, uh, would have been remarkably upsetting to West Indians, right? Because they're literally being written out of the empire because they're not listed as men who are fighting, right? And so many black activists uh, argued that Afro-Caribbeans had to fight, as you're pointing out, right? Um, because if they didn't, then their manhood could be questioned, 
all right? And their loyalty could be questioned. This is one of the reasons why African Americans have served in every single conflict in US history, right? Um, every single conflict African Americans have soldiered, even, you know, even though over and over again, um, they have faced discrimination both within the military and after they leave it. Um, the, this is the reason why Du Bois famously, in his closed ranks editorial, said that African Americans would have to fight once the U.S. entered World War I. Right? He would later repudiate that position. Right? Um, but Du Bois was not alone. Many African Americans, uh, the vast majority of Afro-Caribbeans, many black colonials on the continent of Africa, right, saw military service as the best hope for full citizenship rights. Right? even though we know historically that turns out uh, repeatedly to fall short. So what, one of the, the way I, I plan to end my book is to talk about like after you know, all of the upheavals after the war, all of the editorials that I read to you from today, the massive protests and beliefs, dozens of petitions and demonstrations, when World War II comes around, many of these aging veterans go out and recruit a new generation of men to fight. Um, because once again, there's this thought that it might work this time, right. right? We cannot sit out just in case this time it works. How did Garvey feel about that, though? Because I would think yeah. he's like, don't fall for it! Yes. Yeah. So this is the remarkable thing. So the Universal Negro Improvement Association is also celebrating its centenary this year, right? Um, it was founded uh, in August of 1914. The very first public declaration the organization made was in support of the British war effort for World wow. War I. The UNIA actually hosted events for soldiers who had enlisted, spoke to them, and encouraged them to go out and fight. Uh, and Garvey, like Du Bois, would end up repudiating that earlier stance, right? Uh, Garvey would end, you know, Garvey in 1914 and 1915 was telling soldiers that, listen, Britain may be bad, uh, but Germany might re-enslave us, literally. He was using the language of slavery, right? Uh, this is the same man who by 1918, who's saying that this is, all of the rhetoric was a lie, um, that we will never fall for this again. If we're gonna fight and die on foreign battlefields, it's gonna be for our race, not for Europeans. Right. Yeah, and um, I work with some of Malcolm X's speeches and his autobiography and all mm -hmm. that, and I know his parents were Garvey guys, yes. you know, but in his magnificent speech, The Old and the New Negro, it's like, you just laid out with the history where that came from. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, there's a, a great, uh, relatively new piece by a historian named Chad Williams, who's at Brandeis, who's written a fantastic book on African-American soldiers in World War I. There's also another new book uh, by two uh, preeminent historians, uh, John Morrow um, and uh, Jeff from NYU, about African-American soldiers in World War I as well, and they point out in, in this kind of collective new body of scholarship that black soldiers uh, helped to usher in the new Negro movement, right? That we often think about uh, the work of radical black novelists and poets, right? Uh, black activists like Garvey and Du Bois, right? Uh, but black soldiers are at the center. When we start looking for them, black soldiers are absolutely at the center of the, the kind of what, you know, what is described as the new Negro Renaissance, right? Whether it's as writing poems, um, you know, writing poems about their experiences during the war, 
whether they're protesting, right, um, writing letters, building and editing black newspapers, uh, the two men uh, that I, the two returning veterans that I discussed in my essay, um, Clint Wickham and Etienne Depuch, both returned to edit newspapers, right, that they saw the black press as a central part of transnational black organizing. Um, and so they became newspaper editors as a part of their activism after the war, right? Black soldiers uh, and veterans are everywhere once you start looking for them in the 1920s and 30s in terms of radical activism. Um, why do you think there weren't more, let's say, insurrections, if mm -hmm. you will, like there was in movies? That's a good question, right? Um, I think there are a few things. Uh, so one of the things I didn't mention was that in addition to the kind of proposals to send warships when uh, Caribbean veterans were returning, so if that is the stick, right, um, the carrot was that uh, several Caribbean governments provided free transportation to soldiers who wanted to leave the island uh, and go to Cuba, right, where they worked uh, cutting sugarcane. Right, so around 40% of veterans participated in this program to migrate. Um, and so one of the things I argue in the book is, is this helped to diffuse veterans' activism, right? When you literally have 40% of the men off somewhere else, right? Um, I think another part of it is that there were uh, veterans, as I said at the very end, who not only uh, approached the state as an adversary, but also tried to make it a patron, right? So indeed, many of the same men who in their editorials are saying, you know, we're bearing the old Negro and a new Negro will emerge, are writing petitions to the colonial government saying, I served in loyalty to the British Empire, right? Uh, and by the way, I'd like a pension now, uh, and I'd like voting rights, right? Um, and really held on to the belief that their negotiations would yield more um, than armed uprising, right? Um, by the 1930s, however, a series of uprisings will sweep the British Caribbean, and what I argue is that by that moment, the kind of politics of negotiation had failed, right? It's, it's by that moment where veterans realize that their decade and a half of trying to kind of go between this adversarial uh, and patron-client relationship uh, would not yield the kind of results that they wanted, and they took to the street in mass in colony after colony after colony in the 1930s. And I was wondering if going with what you said earlier that the, the black men who enlisted, they enlisted for all of their people. It wasn't just for them or their particular um, island or whatever nationality. And I wonder if the same token wasn't like, we can't engage in an uprising because other black bodies will suffer elsewhere if we fail. I think that could certainly be part of it, right? I mean, certainly the, the news of what happened in Belize mm -hmm. spread rapidly, mm -hmm. right? And there were other attempts at uprising in 1919. I mean, 1919 is a, a year of global radicalism, right? So we have right. not only black radicalism, we have the kind of a global, uh, global wave of socialist or communist activism as well, right? This is a moment where um, the, and, so, and certainly suffrage, also women in Jamaica get the right to vote based on their patriotic labor during the war, right? So elite propertied women uh, are granted the right to vote explicitly because of this, right? Um, so I think that there is this effort in 1919 um, in several places 
to directly confront the state, right, through insurrections, whether they're labor insurrections or urban uprisings like in Belize, and over and over again, they are met very violently. Right? Um, and they're often fractures, even within the ranks of veterans, between those who, who are committed to this politics of accommodation right, and negotiation and those who are, are pressing for immediate confrontation. Right? I think that ends up kind of lessening the potential as well in this moment. But certainly throughout the war years, uh, Afro-Caribbean women are arguing that it's not just service in the military and in the battlefield that counts. They're arguing that they are sacrificing just as much as men, right? Um, and are demanding a, a rewards from the state for that. So women who, uh, whose sons perished in the war are writing not only um, for financial compensation, but literally I have petitions from women who are saying, my son died in the war, so you need to give me a job. Right? You need to ensure the state needs to take over the role that this lost male member of the family played. Right? Um, you have women like Annie Flowers right, who are saying, listen, you know, if, if, the, if the black men won't do it, right, I certainly will. Uh, she was not alone in that sentiment. Yeah. Uh, and I think this comes out in, in some of the, the scholarship on African-American veterans as well. Um, Adrienne Lent Smith also has a fantastic book about African-American veterans that thinks about black women's roles as uh, with organizations like the YMCA during the war and other organizations and how black women saw the sacrifices in the, as a collective sacrifice. Um, and I think I, I didn't include Jeff's last name, but Jeffrey Salmon's work as well on this. So there's a, I'm, really thankful to be part of a community of scholars who are thinking about this war and as, as one of my colleagues said putting the world back in world war one yeah, right, right, right. Um, really thinking about what what this war meant off if we move away from the battlefields of europe right uh, and think about the millions of colonial subjects for whom the war changed their lives